for tonight is from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, um, verses 17 to 34. So that's found on page 1201 on some of the few Bibles. So 1 Corinthians chapter 11, starting at verse 17. In the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and to some extent I believe it. No doubt there have been differences among you, among you to show which of you have God's approval. When you come together, it is not the Lord's supper you eat, for as you eat, each of you goes ahead without waiting for anybody else. One remains hungry, another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you for this? Certainly not. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. A man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognising the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgement on himself. That is why many among you are weak and sick and a number of you have fallen asleep. But if we judged ourselves, we would not come under judgement. When we are judged by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be be condemned with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for each other. If anyone is hungry, he should eat at home, so that when you meet together, it may not result in judgment. And when I come, I will give further directions. This is the the word of God. Thank you, Hannah, for reading that passage. Well, let's uh, turn to God in prayer and we'll have a look at this passage. Heavenly Father, you tell us that you love this church. You love this church more than we do or ever could. But we pray, Lord, that you might use us all to love this church as you would uh, help us to be united in the faith. And we pray, Lord, that our time together and as we reflect on these words will be built up in Christ. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, friends, have you ever considered why we do what we do when we gather together as a church family, when we meet each Sunday like this in the morning or in the evening like this? Have you ever thought why we do what we do? And think back to the first time you entered into church. Was that a strange experience for you? Was it weird what Christians did, what Christians said, what, what your experience was like? What is it all about? Well, let's go through the things we do in church when we gather together as a family. Why do we sing? 
Well, we don't sing because it's the only public place you can sing and not be laughed at. The other place, perhaps not public, is in the shower, but no one should be laughing in there anyway. But why do we sing? Well, we sing because we are praising the God who is worthy of all praise and honour and glory. And as we do so, praising God together, we in fact invite each other to join in to praise God together. We are also declaring to one another that this is the God who loves us. This is the God we serve and worship and this is the God who's done amazing things in his son for us. That is what we're doing. We're inviting each other. We're encouraging each other as well as we do so. That's why we sing. Now what else do we do when we gather together as a church? Well, we pray. Why do we pray? Well, we don't pray because we are people who want stuff out of God and praying is the way to get stuff out of God. That's not why we pray. We pray because it shows our utter dependence upon God, the God of this universe. It shows our trust in God and so when we pray, when we come to him in adoration, praising him for who he is, when we come to God confessing our sins, recognising our flaws, when we come to God thanking him for all his goodness and blessings towards us and when we come to God presenting our requests, that is what we do when we pray. What about reading the Bible? We've just done that. Why do we read the Bible? Well, we don't read the Bible just because we're Presbyterians. We love the Bible. It's not the reason. We read the Bible because as the Bible is read, as the words of God are read aloud and heard, we are in fact hearing the very words of God. God reveals himself to us through his written word concerning his son Jesus Christ. This is how we know God. This is how we come to know what to believe. This is how we come to know how we are to live. That's why we read the Bible. Now, what about the sermon? Why do we have sermons each week? Why must we have sermons each week? Well, we don't have sermons because we need to give the minister something to do. I mean, the minister, right, they they work one day a week and if they're not preaching, what else is there for them to do? Now, I hope you're not thinking that. But the reason we have sermons is because the sermon is the public declaration and proclamation of the gospel of Christ and its promises and it calls for response. It is the means by which the church of God is taught and encouraged and built up in the faith and in the truth. That's why we have sermons. Now these things, other things we do every week, you've seen them, you've experienced them. But what about the Lord's Supper? What is that all on about? I mean, imagine and think back to your first experience of the Lord's Supper. What was that all on about? In the eyes of the young church, the non-Christians, I mean, the Lord's Supper is perhaps the, the weirdest and strangest things Christians do. They're suddenly all silent and they're suddenly eating something and drinking something. What's all that all about? What is the Lord's Supper about? And so that's what we'll be focusing on today. As Paul writes this section of the letter to this church concerning the Lord's Supper. And so three things to know about the Lord's Supper which Paul tells us in this passage. Firstly, the Lord's Supper signifies unity. It signifies unity. It signifies unity in Christ. We belong to him. All of us who are Christians, we belong to him. And it also signifies unity within each other. We belong to each other. The church is a special place. Not just a social place, it's a special place where the family of God meets. So we belong to God, we belong to Christ and we belong to each other. 
It signifies unity. You see, the Lord's Supper does something society can't. In society, in the world, there are racial divisions, there are cultural divisions, there are divisions in status, there are the rich, there are the poor, there are the haves and have-nots. And they were particularly explicit in the ancient world. But you see, the Lord's Supper does something unique and special. It brings about a unity. It breaks down all those barriers. It breaks down all those borders. The Lord's Supper brings about unity. It is to share in fellowship with the king and it is to share in fellowship with each other. And so this was what Paul said earlier uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. So we'll flick back just to one chapter. Have a look at chapter 10 verses uh, 16 and 17. Here Paul speaks about the Lord's Supper and he says, Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks our participation, that is a fellowship in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread that we break our participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one loaf. And so the image there, what Paul is telling us, is that we all share in the one bread, the one loaf. We belong to one another and we belong to Christ. So the Lord's Supper signifies unity in a way the world can't. And so what this means is that when the church shares and joins together in the Lord's Supper, there must be no sense of one-upmanship that some are superior uh, over others, some are better than others and some are inferior, some have and some have not. There must be no sense of division at all as the Lord's Supper is shared and celebrated. And guess what? Well, that was exactly what was happening in the church in Corinth. What Paul says here now was extremely damning, devastatingly damning. He says to this church, you guys have got it wrong. There's no good in you when you meet. Look at what Paul says. He's got no praise for them at all. The church gathering, which, which is meant to be a place, a time where the church is, is in joy and in celebration and united in love and built up. This church, well, their times together were times of disunity, times of breaking down and tearing down. And so look at what Paul says, verses 17 to 19. In the following directives, I have no praise for you. I mean, that is damning. Paul says, there's nothing good to say about you at all. For your meetings do more harm than good. I mean, just imagine that. Going to church should be a time of great encouragement, of building up or preparing us for the week ahead. But these guys, they will probably walk away from church more depressed than they were when they arrived. And then verse 18, Paul goes on. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you. And to some extent, I believe it. No doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. And so there were those in the church who did right, but it seems from this that the vast majority didn't. You see, what was happening in that church was that the social classes, the divisions in society, they were also brought into the church. They were not meant to be in the church, there was meant to be unity in the church. You see, the Lord's Supper was a meal that was shared, a feast that was celebrated. They sat down, they ate and they got full together. But here, those times were times of division and humiliation. You see, what was happening was that the rich Christians, in the ancient world, the rich Christians, the rich ones, they didn't really have to work too much. And so they were able to meet earlier when, when church gathered. And so these rich people, they stuffed themselves up with food 
with the fine food, you know, like the caviar or lobster, the wagyu beef, the nice bottle of red or white wine. But then the poor Christians, many of them were slaves who became Christians. Well, they couldn't come to church when the rich arrived. They had to work. And, and those who were slaves, they couldn't knock off work when they, when they wanted. They had to serve their masters. They had to do all their duties at, at their home, at their house, cooking and cleaning. And only after all those duties were done could they go off to church. And so when they arrived, what did they find? Well, they found that the rich have already gathered and they were stuffed with food and they were drunk. And so they, the poor, were humiliated. They were despised. They were looked down upon. There was no sense of fellowship. The Lord's Supper, the gathering of the Church of God, was meant to be a time of joy and celebration and unity. But there was none of that here. And so Paul says, I have no praise for you at all. No praise for you at all. And so we see that this must not be in the church. And so we see this in verses 20 to 22. When you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper you eat. You see, they were in fact behaving like how pagans were behaving in the temples but it must not be. And then Paul goes on, For as you eat, each of you goes ahead without waiting for anybody else. One remains hungry, another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? And so you see the the historical context there. It was a time of unity, of celebration, but there was division. The rich were looking down upon the poor. Now, just imagine if that were to happen here. What would that look like after service tonight? Those of you who brought something for supper, those of you who, who dress nicely, you, you, you dress like you're in fashion, you don't, you don't wear clothes from the 70s, those of you who make over $100,000 a year and you tithe, but those of you, we, we'll check you out, we'll check your bank statements and as you exit, We'll let you out first to the, to the hall, in the warmth of the hall. We'll let you have the coffee first. We'll let you eat the supper you brought. We'll let you feast on what is out there, whatever is out there tonight. What is out there? I don't know, actually. <laughs> we'll let you first, but the rest of you, you stay here, you poor and daggy people. No, we, we can't let you pounce on the rich as they feast and enjoy. I mean, imagine a church like that. That is really not on, is it? It's hard to imagine that that could be what the church of God would be like. But that was exactly the behaviour of the Corinthians. And so Paul says here, what shall I say to you? Shall I praise you for this? Certainly not. And so the Lord's Supper was meant to be and is meant to be one that signifies our unity with Christ and with one another. As the church gathers and shares together, it's meant to be united And so that's why I love to use the language of the church being a family. That is what we are. That is who we are. We are a family, united in the deepest sense of the word, deeper than the blood. And so, secondly, let's have a look. The Lord's Supper signifies unity, but the Lord's Supper also reminds us of the death of Christ. You see, it was the death of Christ, the death of the Son of God, that brought about this unity. And it is the death of Christ we remember at the Lord's Supper. And this was what Paul wants them to remember. You see, Paul wants them to see how can you turn a meal that reminds us of the sacrifice of the Son of God, the King of the universe. How can you turn that meal 
where we remember that the Son of God died for us and turn that into something of selfish snobbery, selfish self-indulgence. I mean, Jesus says when he, he, he spoke in those words in Matthew in our first reading, do this in remembrance of me. And so how can you scoff down all that food and at the same time remember that Jesus died for me? It just does not make sense. How can you get drunk with all your rich buddies and remember at the same time that Jesus died for me? How can you despise the church of God? How can you humiliate the poor and at the same time remember that Jesus died for me? That is not on. It's inconsistent. And so it was not the Lord's Supper they were eating. And so we see this, verse 33, uh, 23 to 25. Paul reminds them here what they are to remember. And so Paul, in a sense, re- repeats what he learnt from Jesus. For I received from the Lord what I also pass on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. You see, the death of Jesus brought about the unity that is and that must be seen in the church. Unity with him and unity with one another. And the manner in which it is shared must be honoured and it must be remembered. Now, throughout Christian history, church history, the practice of the Lord's Supper varied and changed throughout the centuries. The early church, how they celebrated the Lord's Supper, they, they in fact had a meal. There was enough there to get full on. There was enough there to get drunk, though they shouldn't have. But that changed throughout church history, throughout the centuries, and as the church grew, as the, the churches became bigger, it became more complicated for the church uh, to have meals together. And so token meals were, were done, you know, the little token wafers and little pieces of bread. And so that's what we see in our church. And in various churches, you'll see different practices. Different churches celebrate the Lord's Supper in a different way. Do, do you use little wafers or little pieces of bread? Do you use real wine or juice? Do you come up to the front? Uh, to celebrate it or, or do you wait for it to be taken around? Now the reality is that the practice is different today. It is different today and perhaps in most churches it is different to how they did it in the first century. They had proper meals back then. But though the practice might look different, and it is different, though the practice might look different, the manner in which it is to be conducted, the attitude of the believer, the manner of the believer must be the same. Because the focus of the Lord's Supper must be on the cross of Christ, on the death of the Saviour for sinners. And that's perhaps why Jesus gave us this meal, gave us this, in a sense, um, a sign to help us remember so that we might never forget what he did for us on the cross. You see, the sad reality of, of many Christian life and many churches is that we can go on with the business of the church go on with living out the Christian life. We can run events, we can run training events, do socials, run camps, preach on relationships, on parenting, on various doctrines. We can be involved in various ministry teams. We can be so caught up and so busy that we forget to keep the centre the centre. That we forget to keep the cross of Christ the centre of our very existence. And so in one sense, Jesus gave us this meal 
as an object lesson, as a public physical demonstration of his gospel, of his love for us. And so as I partake in it, as I share in the bread and the wine, I remember the death of Jesus. Not just objectively that this was what Jesus did, he died, but subjectively that he died for me. I remember the death of Jesus as I partake in the Lord's Supper, however it's done today, but that's what I remember. And so when the Church of Christ does do that, we are doing something together and that is we are proclaiming together the Lord's death until he comes. You see, more than just remembering that Jesus died for us, it's also a meal of anticipation until he comes. Do you notice that? It's a meal looking forward to a time when we will no longer need to remember because we'll be at the very banquet in heaven, in the very presence of Christ himself. And so we see this in verse 26. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so the Lord's Supper, it signifies unity and it reminds us of Christ's death for us until he comes. Now finally, the Lord's Supper demands our self-examination. Have a look at verses 27 to 28. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or, or drinks of the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. A man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. You see, there's a proper attitude in the gathering of the people of God, in the fellowship of the Lord's Supper. There is a worthy manner and there is an unworthy manner. There is a proper way to approach it and there is an improper way to approach it. Now, this is not calling for sinless perfection here, that you have to be worthy, you have to be perfectly sinless to participate in the Lord's Supper. That's not what Paul is saying here. Because if that were the case, who could participate? There is no one perfect. There is no one who is worthy of God's grace. There is no one worthy of the death of Christ. You see, what this is saying is that we don't participate in the Lord's Supper where I claim that Jesus died for my sins. I partake in it, but inside my heart I'm still nurturing sin in my life or where I claim that Jesus died for my envy, but I continue to be envious of the person sitting next to me. That is unworthy. Where I claim that Jesus died for my greed, but then tomorrow, come Monday, I continue to serve my idol of money. Where I claim that Jesus died for my hatred, but I continue to feed my hatred for that person in the church. You see, that is to eat and to drink in an unworthy manner. It is to make little of the death of Christ. It is to diminish its value. It is to look down upon the death of the Son of God for us. And so the worthy manner then would be, I'm a sinner. I approach this meal, this supper. I approach it falling on my knees, declaring I'm a sinner in need of mercy. So help me God. And so when we meet as a church, when we do come around to sharing the Lord's Supper, which we do every two months at this church and it will happen next Sunday, it is a good opportunity, not just the only opportunity, but it is a good opportunity to reflect on our own lives, to confess our sins, to make amends, 
to reconcile with those we have failed, broken, sour relationships with. You see, we, we can easily live life ignoring the problems of our life, the, the hatred of someone, the bitterness against someone that we're harbouring. You see, that's, it, that, that's difficult to resolve. It's easier to just forget about the relationship. But Paul says that you ought to examine yourself. You can't live that way. You can't claim that Christ died for you. You can't claim that Christ has forgiven you. But you go on not forgiving and not loving. You see, this time is the time to look inside us and not look outside us and around us. And so Paul here, he tells them, this is serious stuff. Don't muck around with this stuff. You, you can't take the participation of the Lord's Supper lightly. And he says here, there's judgment involved. Look at verse 29 and 30. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognising the body of the Lord, eats and drinks judgment on himself. You see, there is a judgment upon those who disregard the Christ who died for them. And there is judgment by God on those who disregard the church for whom Christ died. And then Paul goes on to say, that is why many of you are weak and sick and a number of you have fallen asleep. Isn't that interesting? Some have become weak and sick because of how they approach the Lord's Supper. I mean, Paul is saying this is serious stuff. Some became sick. Some even died because of their unworthy manner at the Lord's Supper. I don't know about you, but does that sound a bit strange, a bit too harsh? Now, what Paul is not saying is that every time someone does get sick and every time someone dies is related to what they did at the Lord's Supper. Paul is not saying that. He's not making a one-to-one correlation that sickness and death is related to some particular sin. But we can't discount it entirely. Sometimes people do get sick because of some sin. Sometimes people die because of some sin. And Paul says here quite clearly, that is the judgment of God. And it seems that in this case, it was happening amongst the Corinthians. Now, how does it look like today? Well, I heard of a story of a young pastor. This young pastor, this is a true story, he served in a community church in the 1930s. Now, this church he was serving at was filled with, with people who were greedy and materialistic. There, were, there was sexual immorality. There was even cruelty in this church. It was just a church that was not living the way they should. But the people still went along to this church because that's what they did back then. And so this pastor, this young pastor, he really didn't know what to do. He was young, he's been serving, preaching, teaching at this church for 18 months, but he's become more and more discouraged by what he's been seeing, by the moral behaviour of this church. It was difficult for him to exercise church discipline, that was tough for him to do. He was single, he was lonely, and so he was greatly discouraged in his ministry. He's been here for 18 months. And so what he did was, for the next three months, on the floor of his study, he cast himself before God and he wept for three months. Every day he would plead to God, I'm not big enough to handle this mess. I'm not big enough to handle the sin of this church. I'm not, I'm not big enough. I'm not brave enough. I'm not strong enough. And so he would grieve the sin of this church. He would grieve that they would dishonour the name of God. And so he would pray every day for three months. God, take me out of this place. Or send someone who is more powerful and stronger than I. Or God, 
you fix it up. You clean up this church. And you know what happened after praying for three months like that? Over the next three months, in the congregation of a bit over 200 people, he had 34 funerals. 34 funerals. And in the next year, he baptised 200. Now, I hope you're glad that I'm not praying such prayers about this church. But sin is serious, isn't it? Sin is serious. must never be taken lightly. And so Paul says, now examine yourself. Judge yourself so that you won't be judged. Wait for one another. Express, show unity in the church so that your church gatherings won't be one of judgment but one of blessing. And so he says in these final verses, 31, but if we judge ourselves, we would not come under judgment. When we are judged by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be condemned with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for each other. If anyone is hungry, he should eat at home so that when you meet together, it may not result in judgment. And when I come to you, I will give further instructions. And so the Lord's Supper, it demands self-examination. The Lord's Supper reminds us of Christ's death for us. And the Lord's Supper signifies our unity with Christ and with one another. And so you see, the Lord's Supper, though it might look strange in the eyes of visitors, in the eyes of non-Christians, it is good. It is for our good. It is in fact even good for the visitor. It is in fact even good for the non-Christian. Now I'm not sure if if you ever felt um, you've invited your friend along or family member who's not a Christian and it's it's a Lord's Supper Sunday and you're cringing inside. They're going to think this is strange and weird. You know what? If you are a non-Christian tonight and if you do witness the Lord's Supper, it's meant to give you a little glimpse of the Gospel message. It's an object lesson of the Gospel. It is a demonstration of what Christ has done for his people. You see, what you're witnessing when you see the, as an outsider, when you see the Lord's Supper, what you're witnessing is a group of Christians who are fully aware of their sins, of their failings, of their brokenness. You're witnessing a group of Christians who are fully aware of their utter unworthiness before God. But when they come and join and share in the Lord's Supper, when they celebrate the Lord's Supper, they are acknowledging their complete dependence, their utter trust in the grace of God when they remember the death of their Saviour for them. And so even for non-Christians, it is for you to see and observe because when you see what Christians are doing together, you're getting a glimpse of the Gospel. And so what the Lord's Supper does for non-Christians is that it serves as an invitation that you too might search your own heart and see where you stand before God. It's an invitation for you to come as well, to join in and to call upon Christ as your Saviour as well. But what about for the Christians? Well, for you Christians here tonight, we must remember what the Lord's Supper signifies. It signifies a unity brought about by the costly death of the Son of God and so we must never undermine that. We must never destroy that unity. But you see, this unity is not just something we show and display at the Lord's Supper. It's not just for that time. It's not just every two months when we share in the Lord's Supper, that's the month, that's a week that we show unity in the church. 
You see, the way we conduct the Lord's Supper today, where we in fact eat the little piece of bread and when we drink the juice at the very same time. Do you notice that? We eat and drink at the very same time. It's actually very hard, hard to show this unity and division when we share in that way. But you see, the unity and fellowship brought about Christ by his death must be shown all the time in all gatherings of the people of God, not just at the Lord's Supper. That was, that's meant to display it explicitly, but it's not just for then. This unity we have with Christ and with each other is meant to be displayed each week and each time we gather at growth groups, at youth group, at Sunday school, at church, each week, all the time. And so questions I have for all of us tonight, questions we must all ask ourselves as we gather together as the people of God, are there people in church you avoid? That will be disunity. Are there people in church that you would never bother to speak to, let alone care for or love? That will be disunity. Are there people in church where you think you're better than and so you're not, this is not worth giving any of your time or attention to? Well, that will be a display of disunity. And so just have a look around. I want you to have a look around. Do you actually know everyone's name in just this gathering? I mean, this is not the, the complete church gathering, is it? But do you know everyone's name here? Maybe not. But do you want to know everyone's name here? Well, you should. We are united in Christ. We are united with one another. We share this amazing fellowship which society cannot offer. This is what we want for us. This is the family of God. This is the family that will survive beyond the grave. Now, thinking over my time here at this church for the last couple of years, I, I, I do believe that God is doing wonderful work in our church, in our midst. God is doing wonderful things. People are growing, people are being saved. There is genuine maturity, there is genuine fruits of the gospel. But you know, this is unfinished work. We can never be satisfied. We can never become complacent. We can never be complete like this is it. This is all there is. There is more. We are unfinished work as the people of God. And so we need to strive all the more. We need to strive all the more with the help of God to express our unity in Christ and with one another in ways that are so countercultural but are so beautiful, where everyone is welcome, everyone is cared for, everyone is loved the same. And we need to never forget the death of Christ for us that stands at the centre of our very faith, that stands at the very centre of our very existence. And we must always never take our sins lightly. It is serious. For Christ died for those very sins. And so, what did Paul say? Shall I praise you for how you are going? What do you think Paul will say about us? Shall I praise you? Well, it's my prayer. And I hope it's your prayer as well. That we not only receive the praise of Paul, but the praise of God. So, let's pray.